The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast, and I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Randall Hager of the Psychiatric Physicians Alliance of California. Randall, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, before, just before we started chatting, I, I mentioned it seems like I've heard more about psychiatric issues as they relate to the public and the legislation in the last six months than I've heard in the preceding 20 years. And I think part of that was the gradual acceptance of Laura's law. It's intensifying. It seemed to me from my end, that's what it was. What What's your take on that? Why are we seeing more of this now than we did before? Well, you know, I, I think it goes back a little further than the last six months, although I, I agree with you, there's been a crescendo of interest. Um, I, you know, it seems to me, you know, about five years ago, every legislator was looking for a solution to the homeless mentally ill. And that really elevated the issue. Matter of fact, a couple of years back, uh, there was a poll that said that mental health was on the top of the mind of most citizens in California. I attribute it in part to that. But, you know, all of a sudden, mental health became, if you will, sexy, quote unquote. And people talked about it. Uh, Legislators started to legislate and that increased the visibility and the dialogue. And I think we're where we are today, in part because it's such a, a built-in feature of coping with a pandemic. Um, this this COVID crisis has revealed all the 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 weaknesses in our our societies dealing with mental health, our systems of care, and um, all the things that some people know about and other people don't. But certainly, it brought home the experience of potential mental disorders very, very personally to a lot of people. The uh, classic view of uh, a patient talking with a psychiatrist, patients on a couch and the psychiatrist is taking notes, but during the pandemic, then a lot of this was done via Zoom or Skype or something. Yeah. Uh, Is there any qualitative difference in that that you've heard from physicians or is it? Well, you know, in talking to psychiatrists, there is a, there's a lot of good that came out of that. Um, you know, their, their drop rates on people not, you know, no-shows to their office just plummeted. Yeah. So people actually made connections that they wouldn't have before. Um, you know, there were difficulties like how do you achieve privacy if you're in your own home and you're talking to a psychiatrist on your phone and you got kids and a wife and maybe, you know, other, you know, borders or whatever. Um, so there were some unique challenges, but um, by and large, I think it, you know, the, the during the pandemic, it demonstrated, you know, it, it pushed us forward. I think we were always looking for ways to increase access to psychiatric care. And um, the pandemic forced telehealth to be the dominant modality. And in, in that experience, we found out that, hey, it really works for a lot of people. A lot of people prefer uh, that mode of contact. Um, there are instances where it's not appropriate or it may not be as effective. And we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, what makes good sense as policy going forward based on those two sets of experiences. But, yeah, a lot of care was delivered through telehealth. You know, from your position in the alliance, did you have any sense of uh, how the doctors themselves, how the psychiatrists themselves felt about this as they went through the pandemic? Did, are they accustomed, like a lot of us now are accustomed, more accustomed working from home? 
working virtually. Uh, did they have did you get any sense one way or the other if they liked it or not or neutral about it? Well, you know, the dominant mode of practice for psychiatrists is the single person office, right? And and sometimes that's in the city and sometimes that's in the in their own homes. Um, although that's not as prevalent anymore. But, you know, they're used to being, you know, in an office dealing with an, an individual, whether the office is home or a real office in a commercial building is, is almost even not relevant. But, um, you know, I, I think that the, the, the experience that I will tell you about this whole COVID shift in the modality of treatment to online is that it, it's enabled psychiatrists to reach many, many more individuals. Uh-huh. Um, as people experience the stresses of isolation, uh, uh, sometimes the anxieties, um, express themselves uh, about, you know, catching COVID um, in sleeplessness. Um, All of that perpetually over months and months and months can lead to depression and a feeling of helplessness. So psychiatrists really had a whole lot of new cases open up. And because of that, they often stretched their office hours until late into the evening and started them early in the morning to accommodate that. I know uh, psychiatrists who, who, um, whose caseloads went up by 50%. And um, as you can expect, it actually had an effect on those psychiatrists. Uh, Some of them are, you know, in addition to the normal everyday stresses that we all feel facing this pandemic, um, they were having these, you know, horrendous work hours and uh, feeling the effects of that. And I think then the issue of self-care, um, how do you take care of the physician? How does the physician heal themselves or take care of themselves? And these conditions kind of came up. So it's been a really, in that respect, in terms of, um, you know, policies going forward, it's been a real interesting uh, ride through this p- pandemic. And, and hopefully we'll come out the other side of that soon. You know, one of the issues, uh, it may even be a key issue that has come up over the years as it involved Laura's Law and other legislation is to what extent can a family put a family member into care uh, to, to be able to assign a family member to care because you're going, you may be going against the wishes of that particular person. It's this involuntary piece of uh, treatment for a person who may need treatment. Yeah. Have we resol- how have we resolved that or have we? Well, you know, I think that, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, it was easier for um, a family member to sign a certificate and get somebody committed. And that's why we actually had reform in our laws in the 60s. Um, Laura's law stems from that. But the same tensions are there. And the legislature, even at that time, acknowledged um, in something called the Dilemma Report, which accompanied uh, the establishment of our treatment laws in 1967. The dilemma between, you know, being able to care for people who obviously needed care and without that care would have a risk of some sort of harm happening to them and honoring their civil rights and giving them choice and self-determination on, on the other hand. And so your question was about families. Families cannot simply commit somebody today on their say-so. You know, in the Laura's Law construct, um, they notify the local department of mental health, which then upon notification has an obligation to investigate. But that's where the family role kind of ends for that initial piece. They're waiting for the county to 
do its due diligence, so go contact the person, gather records, and make a finding about whether or not they're appropriate for a Laura's Law program. And so the family, even though they may have initiated it and they're actually called out in the law as, as uh, parties that have that right to initiate those kind of proceedings, don't play a really big role, although they may be asked in later by treatment teams or even the court to participate because I think it's pretty um, commonly understood these days that there's good data that shows family involvement leads to better outcomes. Um, I know Tim and I were talking a little bit earlier, Tim had mentioned the homeless, homelessness issue and uh, that Brown, uh, former Governor Jerry Brown had mentioned, had thought of how difficult this is if people need to be given treatment against their will. Yeah. It's difficult to make that choice. Is that choice, uh, is that covered in legislation anywhere now or is that still? Is well, that you know, I think Laura's Law was the first reform of that legislation in many, many years. And I think in terms of the homeless on the street, um, coaxing them into treatment is often ineffective. And yet at the same time, the, the bar for actually proving that they qualify for treatment under our involuntary treatment standards is very, very high. Uh -huh. So it's very, very difficult. So for instance, you see somebody every day, you walk by them on the street and, and you feel sorry for them because they're obviously mentally ill and they're obviously homeless and you give them a sandwich um, because it looks like they're, you know, skin and bones and not eating, not accessing food. You know, the court would actually, if they were introduced to, a, say, a conservatorship process, would, would see that as evidence that they're not greatly disabled because in some fashion or way, they're able to induce others to take care of them. So that gives you an example of how terribly difficult it can be to meet the standards for, you know, a conservatorship to be established, for instance. Well, going, going back on this a bit, uh, you know, John said, gosh, you know, this is something we haven't really talked about for 20 years. And I feel that in a way, we the crisis that we are facing now with so many mentally ill people and people that have drug and alcohol dependencies on the streets and uh, you know, now really in the public eye in a way that they haven't been so much in the past, I feel like this is something that has been building. John said, hey, we haven't talked about this for 20 years. And I feel like that is part of the reason why we're now seeing this is we really haven't talked about it and we've ignored it. And maybe you can address this, but my understanding is that there was the Lanterman Act passed somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years ago, really changed that whole dynamic and, and changed the state's responsibility on taking care of these people and sort of moved toward giving people more autonomy. But unfortunately, many of them just ended up with autonomy on the streets and, you know, in their own delusions. Can you speak to that and speak to maybe the problems uh, for solving this on the long term? And do we have to like revise the Lanterman Act or is that really not an issue? Um, no, I think it is an issue. I think it's being attempted now in small bits and pieces. Um, and I think what we see historically is that there was a day, as I referred earlier, where a family member could sign an affidavit. And that was just about what it took to get somebody committed to a state hospital. So the pendulum swung with the Lanterman Petra Short Act in 1967, completely in the other direction where we did celebrate the person's right to self-determination. Uh, we underscored their civil rights and we gave courts really high bars in order to treat them over their objection. And that has led to, in part, the crisis on the streets because our treatment laws really thwart treatment. And if it weren't 
you know, we're not talking about throwing those standards out. We still, I think it's still a good idea to have judicial review. I think it's good to um, be able to have standards that are consistent, but we set those standards way high. And I think right now, Laura's Law was the first attempt to do something about providing alternatives that would be court supervised, but aren't inpatient, right? So you're not locked up. In Laura's Law, the neat thing is you go home to your own bed every night. You know, you meet with your treatment team, you're out in the community, you may have a dog, you know, your treatment team helps you get the dog shots. I mean, you live a much more normal life. You're not pacing on a ward somewhere. So I think this is the direction is to try to get um, Laura's Law to be more robust, more evident, um, uh, Lee, interface with communities around the state, um, with populations like the homeless, but also with the absolute you know, tsunami of people who are, who are in our jails uh, and prisons because of a mental illness, and we don't know what else to do with them, and there's no bed, beds at the inn, if you will, because uh, inpatient beds are so limited in acute psychiatric facilities that we have a whole other separate social issue there, which is the criminalization of people with mental illness. So, you know, we are running a bill, the Psychiatric Physicians Alliance is running a couple of bills this year that's going to, we, we, we hope will help. One is an expansion of Laura's Law um, in such ways that conservators, um, um, conservatorships, rather conserved people who have a history of going off of conservatorships and then getting themselves in difficulty in the community, destabilizing and having to come back and be reconserved can actually benefit from stepping down from the conservatorship into a Laura's Law program. And Laura's Law has wonderful data behind it. It shows it does uh, increase stability in the community. It reduces arrests, it reduces violence, it reduces you know, uh, hospitalizations, all that kind of stuff. And we want those benefits for you know, this new population. So we'll be adding a group of people who would be eligible, and that's conservatees. And this was actually recommended by the uh, in the LPS audit that the state auditor conducted, um, you know, a year and a half uh, ago. Counties are trying. Uh, I don't know if this fits in exactly with what you're saying, but some counties are trying. I think L.A. and I think Santa Clara County are two where in case of, say, a domestic disturbance where before a law enforcement officers would would go and deal with it. Now they're being paired with a clinician, with a therapist, or with a professionally trained um, you know, person who's professionally trained to deal with that kind of stress. Is that, how's that working or is it working? Well, you know, there've been models where that has worked for decades. Um, they, they haven't been funded. They have, you know, they're not 24 seven and even in the jurisdictions that do do that. But I think um, this is an idea that's caught fire. There's been federal legislation, there's state legislation where we will have a crisis response system that turns out clinicians for mental health calls instead of the police. Um, Even as well-trained as some of the police are, you still get awful circumstances and and it happens, you know, all the time, unfortunately, where you get a mentally ill person who is acting out and they get shot. Um, You know, they can't obey um, orders. Um, They appear threatening. They might have a screwdriver. Um, they might just be yelling and approaching an officer in a threatening manner. And before you know it, you've got a fatality. So something obviously has to be done. Looking at those models, I think there's clear evidence that they can be very effective as long as there's an interface between law enforcement. So you can figure out what's a real dangerous situation and you don't dispatch clinicians to a gunfight. Right. You know, you don't want to do that. 
Um, but so that there's coordination and then that clinicians can, can be in a crisis mobile unit and respond to those calls, I think can work very effectively. You know, it's interesting you say that, uh, not to sort of derail this, but I actually was a witness to a police shooting of a man, young man who had turned out schizophrenia and he was killed by the police. And unfortunately I was right there. Um, and it was interesting because the police had a very tremendous presence. I mean, there must have been 20 officers, maybe probably more than that, uh, you know, in SWAT trucks and all this stuff. And if there was a, you know, person that was a mental health technician on the scene, he or she was nowhere in evidence. And there was you know, really no effort to communicate with the person basically until they shot him. And it was even at the time in the middle of this, situation, I thought, why aren't they doing something to try to, you know, disarm this moment? And they didn't. And I, I'm sure that that's replicated over and over again. And, you know, that leads me to a question on something you said earlier uh, about the jails and the prisons becoming a de facto treatment center. Do, you, do we have numbers on how many people in the prisons and in jails are mentally Ill, are there because of mental illness or, or a problem that is really a medical problem rather than a, you know, a criminality problem. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, my data is a little old, but, and this, but the state has updated data on that. I think like in prisons, um, I think there's close to 32, 33,000 individuals um, in our prisons who are severely mentally ill. And you could probably make the case for most of them. You could follow their careers where they've, you know, eventually, landed in prison and you could find places where there could have been interventions and there weren't. And if they were mental health interventions, you know, they would not be there. Um, you know, and the, and the state keeps really, you know, keeps data on jails, uh, kind of the same thing there. So, so about a, you know, quarter to a third of inmates in prisons um, and about 20% of inmates in state jails, um, have a severe mental illness. And so, as you say, it's a de facto and default um, place for these individuals to go when there are not enough beds in the community. And if, in a perfect sense, if we could get those people to stop going to jail and stop going to prison, uh, my guess is there probably aren't enough beds and treatment centers available for them. I mean, what would be, what is being done to maybe make that change that availability or, or is anything being done? Yeah, a couple things. Um, and thank the governor for this, that he has an infrastructure uh, proposal that, that is a crisis behavioral health infrastructure proposal. And so he's proposing to put two point, I think it's four or five billion dollars out there for counties to begin constructing facilities and so they can acquire them, they can construct them, they can rehab them, whatever. Um, and that'll help us put some beds online, something that we haven't seen, um, you know, like since since the LPS was established, we've been going the other direction, losing beds. And now maybe there's with this. I mean, that's a huge amount of money um, and counties are, are going to take some time to help use it. But, you know, in, a, in five years or more, we're going to see a whole lot more beds and that's going to be helpful. You know, the other on the other hand, we're taking a really close look at how mental health service act funds are being used we have a reporting bill this year that talks about just the full service partnerships which is the wraparound 24 7 whatever it takes kind of care 
And it, that's a billion dollars a year. We want to know if that's reducing criminalization. We don't have data. We want to know if it's reducing hospitalization. We don't know. We don't have data. We want to you know, know more about that. How many people are being engaged in those programs and then saying, yeah, sorry, and walking away and dropping out, essentially, and are those people we see on the street. So we want, we want better information so that we can hopefully tweak and, and fine-tune those programs because the, the model there can be supremely effective, but you got to work the model, right? If it's not the model, it's not going to work. And we know that some counties have um, instituted full-service partnership light programs, and we want those to be robust. And so that will help. Those people who can volunteer can go to full-service partnerships. Those people who need a little bit of encouragement and assistance from a court can go to assisted outpatient treatment. And that gives you, you know, hospital beds, voluntary services, and AOT in the community. Just uh, on a related issue um, involving the medical board, I was reading an LA Times editorial. Uh, This was yesterday, I think. And it said that the medical board of California, which is 15 members, eight, seven with eight professionals, Mm -hmm. as public members, uh, has tried four times in the past decade, I guess, a bit more, 12 years, I think, to get access, to get subpoena power, to get access to confidential physician-patient records. It, this seems to me, just looking at it from the outside, contrary to common sense, it seems that personal, you know, it seems confidentiality as it relates to you talking to your physician uh, is sort of an underpinning that all of us take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take on that? And then, by the way, it's been rebuffed each time. It hasn't happened yet. They've tried a number of times. It hasn't happened. But what's the rationale? Okay. So the critical issue there is whether you as a psychotherapist, and psychiatrists are considered psychotherapists in this kind of scheme, any psychotherapist, whether or not, you know, those confidential conversations are the, are the you know, um, the confidentiality piece of them are is really the effectiveness of the treatment, right? You, you unburden to your treatment professional and psychotherapist, because you know that the world isn't going to hear your embarrassing, sensitive, you know, stories. Mm-hmm. Once you open that up, you, you, you take away the effectiveness of psychotherapy. So that presents a real issue. And I've been very active in the uh, effort to push back on the medical board on this particular issue. You simply cannot destroy a whole modality of treatment simply because, you know, you consider the, the, the mission of the medical board to find, quote unquote, bad doctors much more important than the, the treatment benefits that, that people might get by seeing a, a therapist and having th- those conversations be private and confidential. So yeah. two, uh, two public members to the board, I know there was legislation to do that that would give them a narrow majority on the board, but it was defeated. And the Senate bill, I think it went down. Uh, was that a good idea? Do you think works to have more public than physician, public members and doctors on the board? Well, you know, I, I work with a lot of different kinds of physicians, not just psychiatrists, but, but the psychiatrists, you know, work in coalition with family docs and emergency docs and yeah. all the rest. And, you know, it, it worries me a little bit just as a layman and, and not being a physician, but it worries me a little bit as a layman that, um, you know, ultimately medical decisions are made 
you know, good and bad every day. And if you want somebody to sit in judgment on that, don't you want somebody with some expertise? So while I value the input of, of public members, and by the way, public members could have much more effective um, roles within uh, these boards, uh, particularly the medical board. Um, you know, I, 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 the arg, you know, my own personal feeling is that the argument that you need you need to have that professional expertise in order to make judgments about professional practice, and that if you're a layman, you just you don't quite have it. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's certainly subject to to discussion, and it has been. Um, it is brought up, as you say, almost you know every four or five years or so in the context of reauthorizing, say, the medical board. Um, um, other boards do have um, majority members who are from the public, who are lay people. And so, but I'm not so sure that that's as important in cosmetology and barbering, you know, as it is in medicine, frankly. Uh, Randall, one final question. Um, what, uh, what major piece of legislation or what issue do you see uh, coming up this year or next in the near term uh, that you're interested in would like to see something you'd like to see happen? Well, as I said, you know, I think we have some really interesting pieces moving this year uh, in terms of the budget and inpatient unit building. Um, our AOT program is expanding and our voluntary whatever it takes services can be getting better. You know, I think really the next step is to look at the great disability standard um, in conservatorships um, and uh, try to attack the issue of there, it, it being so high of a bar to get a conservatorship when, you, when one is really needed. You know, with more AOT out there, you can make the case that that's not necessarily going to be as true, but we still have conservators who've got 50 cases um, and they're trying to manage severely mentally ill people who cannot take care of food, clothing, and shelter, and they got 50 of them, one person. Do you feel like uh, the current news about Britney Spears and her conservatorship is going to hurt your argument there? Is that, is that going to cause a negative with people's perception of, of conservatorship? I, mean, I don't know that most people had ever even heard of this until uh, it came up with Britney Spears in the last you know, few weeks or a few months. Yeah, that's different. I mean, I think it's important that people understand that there are two types of conservatorships. One's the probate, which is what she is under the, uh, you know, uh, um, the jurisdiction of a probate court and a, and a you know, guardianship there. And the LPS, which is just loaded with protections. Um, I do have some concerns that people will just lump them together, say conservatorships are bad, or they need more oversight. And um, fortunately, we have a bill that is providing some of that on the probate side this year. So that may deflect some of the attention. But I think people still don't get the difference. And, and I think there's a perception that that people are being harmed when there's conservatorships because they're so easy to abuse. And again, on the LPS side, I, I don't think that's the case. You could always find room for improvement, but the, you know, the, some of the stuff about the Spears situation just seems absolutely bizarre and would never happen on the LPS. And I'm sorry, what, what is LBS? LPS, L oh. Lannerman Petra Shortout. Oh, that's God, okay. Severe mental illness as opposed to, you know, all that other stuff. Got it. Uh, Randall, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I think we can, there's another to do another two or three podcasts on various things we've talked about today, but 
Uh, Randall Hager, thank you so much. And moving on from mental health, we're going to our person who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. I think it was a pretty easy one this time, John. I think so. I think this was a uh, fairly easy one to do. It was an odd one, uh, definitely. The issue is a former ranking employee of California State Treasurer Fiona Ma who's had a sterling reputation in Sacramento for many years, but this former employee has filed a lawsuit claiming Ma sexually harassed her and wrongfully and illegally fired her. And Ma has denied all the allegations, but this employee, Judith Black, former employee, Judith Blackwell, has made a number of uh, allegations about Ma that she harassed her personally, that she at one point uh, bared her backside to, to uh, Blackwell at, uh, in a motel in an area here in Sacramento that she had been given two jobs working long hours and that in order to handle those long hours and avoid a commute, Maude suggested she get a room, get a hotel or a motel room here in Sacramento, which she did uh, according to the suit. Uh, she had numerous dinners with Ma and her chief of staff. And at one point Ma suggested that she Ma and Blackwell get together. So we don't know where this is going. Uh, as I've mentioned a number of times, you can say anything you want in a lawsuit. Ma has completely denied it, uh, calling them baseless claims and sad. Um, but that's where it stands. It's in court right now and someone else is going to have to sort it out. Uh, Tim, what do you think? It is sad. Um, you know, reading the stories uh, in, the, in the papers, well, the websites, I guess, um, reading the stories, uh, Judith Blackwell had apparently had a stroke and came back from the stroke and found that her position had changed or at least her perception and that she'd lost her parking space, et cetera. At least these are the things she alleges in her lawsuit. And obviously, you know, I think we all have empathy for someone who's gone through a health, health problem as significant as having a stroke. And so whatever happened there, it sounds like it was not a good situation. Now, Again, like you, like everyone, I don't know if any of these allegations are true at all. And I, I hope that we'll find that out and this will be figured out uh, as it moves through the system. But uh, it does sound like it is a sad story for all involved. Um, and it'll be even more sad if it's true. But we just don't know. Yeah. And certainly, you know, not that I ever worked with Fiona Ma particularly closely. I mean, she has spoken to us for stories and, and I know she's been on our politics on tap tv show we had for many years and uh she was always seemed like a very straight shooter to me but uh, obviously people have things in their backgrounds that we would never know about but this really came as a surprise to me i, I just didn't wouldn't have expected this yeah uh, me neither so tim foster thank you very much thanks and, john uh, uh this is john howard we will talk to you next time around take care the capital weekly podcast is produced by tim foster for open california if you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.